I wonder if there are any zoologists that watch these videos. If there are, I look forward to somebody commenting that the jellyfish, which we discussed in part one, is not actually a fish. At least, not in the traditional sense. Of course, to the rest of us who are not zoologists, it seemed reasonable to interpret the round fish described in the Turba Philosophorum as a jellyfish. However, problems arise with the jellyfish interpretation when one looks closer at the round fish recipe. It says to remove the fish gall from the round fish. Jellyfish do not have a gall. Now, this doesn't render the entire last video as irrelevant or useless, mind you. The whole purpose of Ion is to discover the patterns latent in the unconscious mind, to see what human beings were motivated to project onto various things like fish, jellyfish, what have you. Even if the round fish is not the jellyfish, the fish we are about to discuss nonetheless shares many parallels with the jellyfish and what the alchemists projected onto it. The next book that Jung cites is called The Sirenides. According to Wikipedia, The Sirenides is a compilation of magico-medical works in Greek, first put together in the 4th century. The book describes the round fish as follows. The Sinedian fish lives in the sea on the shores of Syria, Palestine, and Libya, is six fingers long, and is a Pisiculus rotundus. It has two stones in its head, and another one in the third vertebra of the tail, or notochord. This stone is especially potent and is used as a love potion. The Sinedian stone is practically unknown because it is very rare. It is also called Opsianus. Opsianus translated from Greek, means obsidian. This stone is twin or twofold. The one is opaque and black, but the other, though black, is brilliant and shining like a mirror. This is the stone which many seek without finding it, for it is the dragon's stone. Before we go on, I just want to ask all of the Minecraft players out there, how do you make obsidian in the game? Yeah, you pour water over lava. A union of opposites in one stone. Moving on. This stone was named by Pliny the Elder and many alchemists as Draconite. This Draconite stone that resides in the Sinedian fish is apparently the same stone that one could find in the head of a sleeping dragon, at least according to Pliny the Elder. What's interesting, however, is that the Draconite stone that resides in a dragon's head is apparently of a white color. So which is it? Is the Draconite stone black, like the one inside the Sinidian fish and described as such in the Cyrenides, or white, like the one inside the dragon's head and described by Pliny the Elder? Young says the following on the matter, quote, The Sinidian stone has a double nature, though as the text shows, it is not at all clear. One might almost conjecture that its double nature consisted originally in a white and a black variety and that a copyist, puzzled by the contradiction, inserted Niger Quidum, though black. But Ruland distinctly emphasizes that the color of the Draconite is white. Its affinity with Saturn may shed light on this dilemma. Saturn, in astrology, the star of the sun, is alchemically interpreted as black. It is even called Sol Niger, I think I'm pronouncing that right, and has a double nature as the arcane substance being black outside like lead, but white inside. 
Quicksilver, says Milius, comes from the heart of Saturn, and in fact is Saturn, the bright silveriness of Mercury contrasting with the blackness of lead. Once again, we see a projection of opposite qualities. Not only that, but we see a union of those opposite qualities in the Cenidian stone, the Draconite. The similarities don't stop there, however. In the last chapter, we discussed how the jellyfish could be seen as a symbol of the inextinguishable power of love, for it unites the sacred and profane loves, fire and water inside one living being. In regards to the draconite that resides inside the Cynidian fish, it is used, as we just said, as a love potion. Now let me ask all of you this question. What does a love potion do? We've seen movies and cartoons where a character takes a love potion and then becomes hopelessly in love with somebody. The magic takes over the conscious mind and will of the victim. An alien will rises up in the bewitched and proves stronger than his ego. Jung compares the effect of a love potion with an unconscious force that rises up and possesses the conscious ego. If you remember all the way back to chapter 2 and 3, we discussed the archetypes of the shadow, anima, and animus, and how they tend to possess the ego if one isn't careful. What does one do to prevent this type of unconscious possession? You integrate these archetypes the contents of one's shadow until one's conscious side comes into balance with one's unconscious side and you resemble the self. And how appropriate is it that our religious and alchemical ancestors projected the Jungian self, the god image, onto fish? In regards to the Cynidian fish, this projection is all the more appropriate. The word Cynidian comes from the Greek word kineo, meaning to set in motion. It is the basis of the word kinetic and cinema. What does one see at the cinema? Moving pictures, right? Edward Enninger of the Ion Lectures comments on this interesting coincidence. This Cynidian fish that contains in its brain and in its backbone these remarkable stones is shown by its very name to have a moving function corresponding to the motor function of the celestial pole, which we discussed a fair bit in the last chapter. The Cynidian fish is the mover, the originator, and this image reminds us of Jung's very pregnant statement that the self is the source of energy. In other words, it is the power of the self and its grip on our conscious ego that guides us to greater horizons. Just like the magnetism of the North Pole guides the steel or the compass, it is the grip that the unconscious, unrealized self has on the conscious ego that moves us, like the Cynidian fish moves. And if we pay attention to its guidance, we will find the most precious of gems at the end of the process. In this case, it's the draconite inside the Cynidian fish's head. In the greater alchemical tradition, that would be the philosopher's stone. In the grander scope of life, it is the self, which, like draconite, the philosopher's stone, or the fish, is a perfect union of opposites. Brought that around full circle, didn't I? There's one question I'm sure some of you will have. What is a Cynidian fish? What makes it round? Does it actually exist? Well, apparently, yes, it does. According to a treatise of the 17th century by an anonymous French author, the Cynidian fish is identified as the Echinaeus remora, 
the common remora or sucking fish. Look at the top of its head. There you go. The Echinaeus has no blood or spiny bones and is shut up in that deep mid-region of the great universal sea. This little fish is extremely small, alone, and unique in its shape. But the sea is great and vast, and hence it is impossible for those to catch it who do not know in what part of the world it dwells. Like the precious Jungian self which resides in the depths of the unconscious, the Echinaeus with its precious draconite resides in the great depths of the ocean. Naturally, an incredibly small fish which resides in the infinite, dark, terrifying expanse of the ocean would be very difficult to catch. Then again, anything of divine value is usually very difficult to catch. As we have said before, one can only achieve infinite joy if there is infinite pain to define it. To use Jordan Peterson's words, one can only obtain the mounds of gold hoarded by the dragon if one goes to the trouble of slaying it. I will conclude this video with one more example of fish symbolism, but before I do, I must acknowledge something. People have been telling me that they have been reading Ion while watching my series at the same time. I'm sure those who are reading the book might have noticed that I have left out one or two things over the course of this series, such as, just off the top of my head, the three sonships of Basilides from chapter 5. I have two things to say on that matter. First of all, I wish to remind all of you that what I am trying to do with this series is simplify really complicated material. I am trying to illustrate what Jung's core points are and how those points might pertain to Jordan Peterson. In doing that, I might leave out one or two parts of a chapter for the sake of clarity and time. Secondly, I do intend to do a video once I go through all the chapters addressing those things I missed. That final extra video will be for those who are especially interested in everything being discussed. I bring all of this up because I will be omitting one part of this chapter from this video, the part where Jung discusses the fish symbol of the Cathars. There is important information here regarding the vision of the two fishes that John supposedly had, but it doesn't pertain to the core message of the chapter especially because the Cathars weren't alchemists. But don't worry, I will discuss this in the quote-unquote extras video at the end of this series. Jung concludes this chapter by retelling a dream that was told to him by one of his patients. It is an example of how the symbol of the fish springs out of the unconscious autochthonously. Quote, I came to the bank of a broad, flowing river. I couldn't see much at first, only water, earth, and rock. I threw the pages with my notes on them into the water, with the feeling that I was giving something back to the river. Immediately afterwards, I had a fishing rod in my hand. I sat down on a rock and started fishing. Still, I saw nothing but water, earth, and rock. Suddenly, a big fish bit. He had a silver belly and a golden back. As I drew him to land, the whole landscape became alive. The rock emerged like the primeval foundation of the earth. Grass and flowers sprang up, and the bushes expanded into a great forest. A gust of wind blew and set everything in motion. Then suddenly, I heard behind me the voice of Mr. X, an older man whom she knew only from photographs and from hearsay, but who seems to have been some kind of authority to her. He said, quietly but distinctly, the patient ones in the innermost realm are given the fish, the food of the deep. 
At this moment, a circle ran round me, part of it touching the water. Then I heard the voice again. The brave ones in the second realm may be given victory, for there the battle is fought. Immediately, another circle ran round me, this time touching the other bank. At the same time, I saw into the distance and a colorful landscape was revealed. The sun rose over the horizon. I heard the voice speaking as if out of the distance. The third and the fourth realms come, similarly enlarged, out of the other two. But the fourth realm, and here the voice paused for a moment as if deliberating, the fourth realm joins on to the first. It is the highest and the lowest at once, for the highest and the lowest come together. They are at bottom, one. Here the dreamer awoke with a roaring in her ears. To young. This entire dream can be seen as a symbolic representation of the individuation process, of integrating unconscious contents into consciousness. Let's go through this dream piece by piece. First of all, when the woman throws her notes into the water, this is a sort of sacrifice. Edward Edinger says the following, This is an image of the sacrificial action of paying attention to the unconscious, of working on one's dreams scrutinizing one's complexes, doing active imagination, and offering those efforts to the waters out of which the dreams and the complexes come. By acknowledging that unconscious shadow side, the work can begin. This is why the fishing rod appears in her hand out of nowhere. Upon making that sacrifice to the water, she gains the ability to obtain the precious fish that lies within, the precious self that resides in the unconscious. The fish she catches has a silver belly and a golden back, a conjunction of opposites that signifies sun and moon. When she catches this, the landscape around her starts to spring up with life, which Edinger views as an image of the original creation. Finally, the voice of Mr. X explains what has transpired. The patient ones he refers to in the first circle are like the woman having the dream. They are the ones who can make that relation to the unconscious. The ones in the second circle, where the battle is fought, symbolizes the struggle between the ego and the shadow. The woman has passed through that second circle already and is in the first circle, hence why she was able to catch the fish. The third realm is not given much explanation beyond what we just interpreted, but the fourth realm is described as joining on to the first. If this dream is an encounter with the Jungian self, it makes perfect sense that the fourth realm joins on to the first. They are both the same as well as different. It is a paradox. Just like the self is highest and lowest, conscious and unconscious, light and dark, the fourth circle joins to the first. Thank you very much for watching. Make sure to like, subscribe, and share. It helps out my channel a whole lot more than you might realize. Also, if you like the work I'm doing here and want to support me, please consider donating to my Subscribestar campaign. Depending on how much you donate, you will gain a certain number of rewards, including access to Movie Night, access to my gamer tags, and more. Finally, if you want more discussion surrounding Ion, make sure to subscribe to Uber Boyo and Young to Live By. They provide a lot more insight into these concepts and find ways to make the subject less terrifying and much more fun. Links to their channels in the description box below. Until next time, just remember, stay yellow.